and welcome to the Emotion and Web podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and this is episode 31. Uh, welcome along fair listener to this the latest episode of the Emotion and Web podcast and in a change of format you've got me on my lonesome this week. I say on my lonesome I have a bit of a cold with me so I'm a little bit nasal so apologies for, um, for sounding a bit bunged up but it's just me this week and I decided I wanted to do a bit of a taking stock type podcast um, and also do a, a reflective podcast as well. So we talk in, in learning and, and organisational development practice, and I guess in wider HR practice as well, we talk about the importance of, of reflecting and sense making and learning along the way. So uh, I thought it would be a good idea to, to do some of that in this episode of the podcast. Because the last time I did it was at the start of the year, start of 2018, and we're now into September. So it was at the start of 2018 that I did my kind of setting out my stall for the year. I had a listen back to that recently, um, and it reminded me of 2017, so then we'll just move on from that one. Um, but also it reminded me of some of the things that I said I was going to do this year, uh, some of the things that I put my... Put my uh, put on the record that I was going to do uh, and I haven't done actually which was interesting some of them I have but some of them I haven't so uh, that's been uh, some interesting thoughts but I'll come back to that uh, in a moment in particular for this episode I wanted to introduce the Emotion at Work hub so if you're anywhere near a web browser uh, please feel free to close your podcast app uh, and open your web browser and type in community.emotionatwork.co.uk so that's community dot emotion at work dot co dot uk and you will find the emotion at work hub now this is something that has been uh, in my mind for a while now probably march april time was when i first decided that there's something that I, that I wanted to do um and it's taking a while to come to together taken a while to come to fruition and it is by no means the finished product so at the risk of being like really cliche and, and talking about the thing that everybody th- talks about, um, I've created what I think is a minimum viable product. So it's it's enough of a, of a product that I think you as a fair listener of this podcast and potential uh, member of the hub uh, and user of the facilities within it, um, so there's enough there for you to get your head around and for you to give me some thoughts and reflections and give me some advice about how you think it needs to be and what you think it needs to be like and what you think is good and what you think needs to be improved um, it's also there to help and support you though as, as a practitioner so the emotional work hub is, is something that you know, like I said it's been in my mind for, for a few months and, and it comes from way back in sort of 2011 when I started to make the transition from um, reading lots of books uh, and and swallowing what the author said to being more what the lovely at Simon Heath one or at or proper name Simon Heath um, would do, which is be more discerning. So, for example, there is a book by a guy called Joe Navarro, which is entitled "What Everybody Is Saying." And it's a body language book. And it was something that I bought in uh, 2010, I think. And when I read it, it might be 2009, actually. But either way, and when I read it, I was like, wow, this is amazing. This tells me exactly what people's body postures mean. And and I took it as read, really. Um, kind of just took, it, took his ideas, took what he was suggesting, hook, line and sinker. You know, if somebody is... Um, 
pulling the the shirt collar on their shirt, it means they're anxious and they're nervous, and therefore you should be interested in what's happening. Uh, or if somebody wraps their legs around the legs of the chair that they're in, then they are anchoring themselves, um, and they're trying to stop themselves moving. Or if you're in a conversation with somebody and somebody's feet point away from you as opposed to pointing at you, then that's a sign that that person is is done with your conversation and they want to leave. Um, and to a certain degree, what what is in that book is true. And Joan Navarro and I had a bit of an argument on Twitter back in 2012 about what was the evidence base behind his book. And he sent me a, uh, some links to, to one researcher in particular, um, which I'll put some details about in the show notes. But I guess the point I'm making is that what, what he was saying in that book is true for some people sometimes in some contexts but it's by no means universal and I think that was a real start for me to be much more discerning in what I read and I started to be much more evidence-based in where I was getting my um, my insights from so I started to look into more peer-reviewed research when I was reading a book I was being that really annoying person and looking for the references at the back when I was watching a, a presentation at a conference, I'd be the one that would go and find the speaker afterwards and say, can you tell me what your talk was based on? What research has, has gone into that? Uh, you know, is it your own practice? Is it, um, you know, is it published research? Where did you get your ideas from? All that sort of stuff. But what I found was it would take me, a, I nearly swore then, it would take me a very long time to get hold of the research. So to either find it or if I found some interesting research, it was paywalled away, it was hidden away behind a paywall. Uh, I didn't know really how to, to search thoroughly in Google. I didn't know what you know what were the different parameters that you could do. So I learned about Google Scholar, which was amazing because when you just normally Google, um, what you find is just stuff that's on average Google. You don't get the, the Scholar or the peer-reviewed stuff. So Google Scholar is an amazing resource for that. But the trouble is... Um, you a lot of what's on there is paywalled and and i ended up searching you know i'd search through one two three four five six seven eight pages of results trying to find the the papers that i could actually access and then when i learned that all i needed to do was to type in the keywords that i wanted to find so let's say emotion regulation workplace uh, and then i would uh, type file type colon pdf so no spaces just file type colon pdf and then what it would bring you back is that is just the PDF files. Now, there are issues with that, of course, because it means that often the PDF files are either old, so they've been paywalled that long that they've now been released, or they could be drafts of papers rather than the final version of the paper, or they could be... Um, paper from a because the the academic world kind of rates their journals so you get like different ratings for the journals so you have like triple a journals and double a journals i guess a bit like kind of moody's or pause and um, thingy for the financial um kind of stability of, of organizations but either way uh, standards and pause or moody's i think as they are uh, so journals have um ratings so one of the challenges with uh, the ones that are non-paywalled is they can be from lower caliber journals as, as viewed by the academic world does that mean the research is less valid no 
um, because what what matters is the the depth and the rigor of thinking that you apply to the research. So you don't just take a, in the same way you don't take a book and swallow it whole. Uh, you don't take a research paper and swallow it whole. You know, there's elements of discernment that you need to apply, looking at things like when was it done, who did it, was that person sponsored, is there any conflict of interest, or is there a uh, does it suggest that they wanted to find a particular result rather than just see what happened? Um, what was the sample size? What was you know was it an effect size or was it a you know how, how did they report the results or the the outcomes or the impact of the study, and are they valid? Because you know, being statistically valid doesn't necessarily mean it had a big impact. He says, starting to sound like Rob Breener. Um, but my point being that it it would take me ages to go and find that stuff, and I wished at the time that somebody would do that for me. I wish there was a way that somebody would curate together the open access uh, resources around particular topics that I was interested in. Now. We all know what I'm interested in because I run the Emotion at Work podcast. My pod, my company is called Emotion at Work and um, it's the Emotion at Work hub. So we know what I'm interested in. So what I've done in the hub is pulled together or curated together all of the specific resources that relate to emotions, that relate to the workplace um, and relate to emotions either in individuals, between people and relationships, in culture as a whole. It could be emotion in mental health or deception. Yeah, so emotion is the theme, but emotion is also broad. So what I'm pulling together or curating is all of the resources that I think um, and I, I've assessed to say these are valuable resources to have available. So to save you having to do what I used to do, which is go and do all of that searching, what I'm doing is I'm pulling them all together in one place. And we've got five different categories of resources in the hub. So one is articles. So that's things that might appear in HBR or Psychology Today or um, you know, kind of more general press type stuff. We've got articles, which is the research articles. Um, sorry, we've got articles, which we've talked about. Then we've got research, which is the peer-reviewed research itself. Then we've got blogs, we've got podcasts, and we've got videos. So what I'm curating together uh, for you, fair listener, is that um, that bank of resources that you can pull on. So when you want, when you're thinking about doing a particular initiative, or you're thinking about what does the you know what's around, or where can I start to find out about um, emotions in the workplace, then the hub is there for you. That, that's what I've designed it and built it for. It's curated those resources together for you to make your life just that little bit easier. Because I remember, like I said, I remember when I did it, I used to get really frustrated. So what's the hub about then? So it's to help people like me, or people like me when I was back in 2011. It's, it's also responding to the fact that there's a real narrative around at the moment that we need to put people back at the heart of work, or as I say, we need to put emotions at the heart of work, or we need to look at um, the humane workplace, um, or we need to put humans back at the centre of work, all of those sorts of things. And if you want to do anything involving people in the workplace, it's got to involve emotion, because emotions are a key part of what makes us human. They're what makes us different. They're what keep us alive and help us thrive as a species. They also get us in trouble as well. I get that, but you know, emotions are one of those things that, that set us apart. So the hub curates those resources together. Secondly, though, I want to make a point of the fact that the research that's going into the resources that we're pulling in, 
So the it's not just right let's go and grab some keywords let's go scrape the internet and find what resources we can find i'm deliberately finding resources that have got an evidence base behind them so it's it's helping to address that i guess again a narrative or a demand that is happening within the hr learning and organizational development profession to be more evidence-based you know there was a hr's most influential thinkers came out this week and Rob Breener was right up there in the top five. I think he was second or third above people like Simon Sinek or um, uh, or Adam Grant. You know, it, and Rob's been championing the evidence-based course for a long, long time. So, but when I talk to, I use the word but a lot in this podcast. That's interesting. I'll reflect more on that later. And when I think about the conversations I have with practitioners, in organizations and as freelance and we talk about being evidence-based some people just genuinely don't know where to begin they don't know where to start they don't know where to go to find it they don't know how to assess it they don't know know, how you differentiate between good and bad what are some of the criteria that you should be looking for and those sorts of things so i want to help with that i want to make your life easier because the the more that practitioners can have a strong evidence base behind them the more validity to the work that we're doing and the greater impact that we can then have in the workplace because we're not just doing fads or we're not just doing stuff because it sounds like a cool thing to do we're doing it because there's some genuine uh, rigor and research behind it so come along and join us in the hub is my request um it's you know it's it is in its early phases it's, it is in its early stage and if there is if there are other resources that you think need to be in there that aren't already then tell me if there's links within the hub that are broken then tell me that as well if um uh, if you think oh actually you know what you're missing this or you need to add this in or you know what Phil, i'm not i'm really surprised that's on there i don't think it should be any of that stuff i want you to tell me you can communicate through the hub with me um or you can just send me a message direct through this podcast or on Twitter or you know however you want to, to get hold of me, really. Uh, the final thing that's in the Hub that I haven't mentioned yet is a discussion forum. So there's a, a discussion forum where, where anybody can post any questions they like um, or post any kind of topic or theme that they want to discuss and explore so that all of the other people that are members of the Hub can also kind of join in and play as well. So as well as having curated resources there, we can then take those resources and we can discuss them as individual um, pieces of research or, or resources on their own, or we can talk about topics or themes. But it's very much a a place that I want to focus on the specific aspects of the role of emotion, uh, how we take an evidence base in the workplace and putting all those things together. So it's not kind of a, a generic HR community or generic L&D community. It's a, it's a community that anybody who has an interest in emotions, evidence in the workplace, they can come in and play. So if you want to, then then come and do it. Now, hopefully, you're thinking, wow, that sounds amazing, Phil. Um, And one of the things I thought would be useful would be to talk about how did I get there then? So how did I get to this point? So I've talked about one aspect already, which is, you know, reflecting on my own experience. Now, the thing is, though, I'm me, and I can be a bit weird at times. So just because that's what the position I was in, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's the position that everybody else is in. So... What I wanted to do was to um, 
do some research with a mix of clients with of, of people that I know or have known me for a long time um, and people that I think would be interested in using the hub that either don't know me already or, or aren't existing clients of mine and I wanted to do some some market research with them to say right what what is it that you would like or what would you value or what can I put together in this hub that would make your life easier or would be a a useful resource for you and, and that's where we got extra things in so initially I wasn't going to do podcasts because I help you know I run my podcast and I run that separately and um, a lot of people said you know what well, that audio format works really well for me because it means I can listen on the move it means I can I can take another stuff and and I don't necessarily do well with reading academic journals so for example some of the podcasts you'll find in there are from say Freakonomics or um, there's one from uh, Adam Grant's Work Life one which both of which have a you know a strong evidence base behind what they do um, and likewise so Pabia's in there from the three good podcasts as well so the, the, the resources that I'm adding in even though they might not be peer-reviewed research papers they're coming from a uh, they're coming from an evidence base behind it and when I asked clients colleagues prospective new clients what is it that, that they value about me what is it that they value about their relationships that they have with me what is it they value about the work that we've done together or or what is it what is it that they they think they would value or what do they value from engaging with a community like this and that's where the discussion forum came from because a lot of the feedback i had was you know what we really value your thinking phil we really value your um your ability to link things up and see the patterns in stuff we really value um the the way that you take your you take your understanding of complex ideas and you make them dead easy for people to get their head around we like how you talk about your practice really openly you talk about the the things that you're doing the work that you're completing the projects you're working on the research that you're running um and you link those things together so there was also that request of you know how can we how can we make the most of people's thinking yes yours Phil but also other people you know there'll be other people in this hub who will um, they may be researchers themselves or they may be practitioners and we want to get their thoughts as well and that's where the discussion forum kind of solidified its place in the hub for me because to have that for me to have conversations with individuals which is something I do a lot you know I talk to clients or uh, or prospective clients or people I know through Twitter or other people in my network and we have some really fascinating discussions about uh, the topics within the hub you know about emotion how emotion works in individuals between people in relationships in teams in culture how it translates over to things like credibility and deception um, how it links in with mental health how it overlaps with things like shame you know, so these are really interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, and also uh, the links between identity and emotion, and those, all of those different factors and variables. But those are conversations I'm often having on a one-on-one -on -one basis. What I don't get to do is to have those conversations with multiple people at the same time. And as cliche and dare I say it, wanky as it sounds, I genuinely want to make a bigger impact on the world. And and I can't I can only and I can only have so much of an impact by um, talking with one person at a time. The more people I can engage with, the 
bigger a conversation I can have, the broader a range of interests and thoughts and approaches, that, that really broad diversity of, of opinion, of thinking, of uh, expertise and background, I think just makes that conversation so much richer. And the, and the richer and more beneficial those conversations can be, then the bigger change I think I can affect in the world. You know, I've said for a long time that I want to place emotion where it belongs at the heart of work. And I do that to enrich lives or to reduce harm. And, and some people ask me what that reduce harm bit is, and I'll come back to that in a second. But there's only so much of that I can do if I'm just working with one person at a time. I'd much rather be having a broader conversation. So what do I mean by reduce harm? So emotions, as I said earlier on, they have a potential to um, make our lives amazing, to enrich our lives, but they've also got the potential to get us in trouble. Um, and the workplace can be harmful for people. That can that harm can be done maliciously through malintent. Uh, through, and so the work I do through the investigations that I run, through the interviewing that I that I do, and, and the uh, the truth. Uh, catching activity that I engage in then that helps reduce the harm of malintent in the workplace but also uh, mental health is a massive issue in, in the UK workplace and, and beyond and, and that emotion is emotion is not mental poor mental health isn't just about emotion but there's an inextricable link between them because what can initially be episodes of emotion can over time become something more debilitating like anxiety or depression or um, paranoia or um, you know overly rose tinted glasses with just you know unrealistic optimism and, and those things can also cause harm you, know, you can believe so strongly that you're amazing you're the best thing in the world that you won't see any of the risks or the potential downsides and you'll just take you know you run the risk of of taking yourself off a cliff um, so there are there are other ways that emotions can harm you as well, and and I want to help with that too. So that's why I talk about enriching lives and and reducing harm. So this is phase one of the hub. So we're we're at a point now where we've got phase one isn't complete in any week in any means, but phase one is launched and the hub is there and available and, and ready for you to to come along and be a part of and and to help shape and guide uh, what happens but there's going to be three phases to the hub so there's more to come it's good, you know, i've got further ideas based on the market research that i did about where else the hub can go um but what i'm keen to do for now is is to take this minimum viable product that i've got and, and make it into something that is a genuine uh, a hub for people to go to where you can access the resources that will help you that will make your life easier that will help you find the answers to the questions that you need to find answers to so please please if you're not already come along and join the hub and let me know what you think help shape where it goes so one of the other things that came out in my market research was that um, and it was I think it was summarized most succinctly by uh, Mark Gilroy or that or at that Mark Gilroy on Twitter where he said you're said the thing is Phil you're a genuine researcher and a genuine practitioner you're not a researcher that's in a university that's just you, you know doing research on undergraduate students and um, 
you know, and then publishing that out as often as you can to raise, you know, your profile or your, or your university's profile, or to hit your KPIs on publishing stats. Uh, and you're also, you know, you're not just a practitioner that talks about research that other people do, because you run your own research as well, and that is a really valuable thing because. So moving away from what that was how Mark summarised it, but earlier on this year, I had my first peer-reviewed journal published. So I, I completed my master's degree in two thousand and fifteen, and then in two thousand and eighteen, I've I've published the the outputs from my findings. Now, does that mean I've been sat doing nothing for three years? No, but my because my thinking has evolved over those three years. So what? I started writing the paper in 2017 and it got published this year with uh, the lovely Dawn Archer as my co-author um, and we've been working on it for a long time to to create something that is of genuine interest in academia because if it's not an interest in academia it's not going to get published but also is of genuine use to practitioners in the field and and as much as I never thought it would happen it really has kind of bitten me to want to do more, to want to do more research, get more research published and get more research put out there. So the work that I do has that depth and has that rigour behind it. And what Mark was saying is that's a really valuable thing. That's a really useful thing to be able to, to access from you because it, it shows the depth and the quality of the thinking that you have to put in. Now, I'll be honest, I found that really quite tough to hear. Um, because you don't, you know, even though I do a lot of research in in identity, in in compliments, in politeness, in uh, face and face work, in appreciation, and the and how all those things link together, it still feels a bit weird when somebody gives you a really good compliment or a really thoroughly thought through compliment. Um, and then when I've kind of taken that and, and discussed that with other people, that they've said, yeah, you know, Mark's right. So I I, I want to give it the respect, give Mark's compliment the respect it's due. Because when I think about it, I've actually got two more research projects on the go already. So I've got one research project, which is a longitudinal study of how can um, awareness of the notions of face and face work um, impact individual performance over time. Now, there are issues with my study because it's all self-report. I get that. Um, with any study, there's going to be limitations. Um, but I'm really interested in can have can an understanding of face and face work genuinely help somebody do their job better? Can it help them with their confidence, with their performance, with their how they how they do against key metrics that that they're measured against? Um, and how does that work for them? Or is it you know actually is it too complicated? Is it a bit of a waste of time? Does it not give them any value? So. It's a, it's a question that I want to answer because it's all very easy for me to go, this is really important, I think this is really key, I think this can, I think this concept of face-to-face work can unlock individuals um, and some of the things that they limit themselves with, I think it can unlock relationships and I think it can be a massive, massive help with change and big institutional organisational change. Uh, I think it can be a really helpful construct to use in that uh, in that kind of environment or in that kind of setting now it's all very well that i think that but what i need to establish is is that the reality does that is that is that actually the case so that's why i'm running that research project on it to find out what's happening uh, for those individuals and, and what's going on 
And and I, I run the risk of making this podcast a bit like I'm trying to blow smoke up my own ass. And I'm conscious of that and, and I'm working really hard to to make sure that it's it's more than that. This is about I guess in a way saying I I work hard to demonstrate the values that I epitomize in what I do. Not just in the work that I do, but in the other stuff that I do as well. So in in the uh, in the research that I'm doing, in the other practices that I'm taking, that that those things that that I value the most about placing emotion at the heart of work, about taking an evidence based approach, about making a difference in the world. I remember one of my values from that I've that I've held on to in the workplace the longest is if I'm not making a positive difference, why bother? If what I'm doing isn't making a positive difference on the world, why the f- am I doing it? Um, and that's been with me for a long, long time. And so I've worked hard over the last few years to be dead clear on what that is so that I can embody it in, in what I do. I mentioned two research projects. So the second research project is going to kick off uh, later on this year which uh, I've got consent for. We just need to get consent from all the participants from. Sorry, we need to get consent from all the participants. So the organisation itself has said, yes, come in and do that research for us for we think that would be really useful. Um, And and again, that's linking to face and face work. Now, I suppose I should say, if you're not sure what face and face work are, then you need to go back to episodes 12 and 24 and 29 and listen to those, and then you'll find out a lot more about what face and face work is. Um, and those research projects then should be ready for publication 2019-2020 I would guess because it takes a while to get into a journal it's not like publishing a white paper that you can do whenever you want Um, and in addition to that there's other research that I'm doing too so uh, Nick Court from um, oh that's gone out of my um, that's gone out of my head completely So Nick Court and I, we published a survey, um, we we did some survey-based research back in the summer of this year, uh, and we're busy analysing the pivot tables and everything else that that goes with it uh, at the moment. But what we're going to do is then publish the findings for that, and we want to do a follow-up uh, we want to do a follow-up piece of research as well. So Nick's, Nick runs a company called the People Experience Hub. Um, and that research is also going to be coming out shortly. So that those three things are really important to me about me, my practice, and where where I want to go in the future. And it's also a call to anybody that's listening to this podcast if you or your organization are interested in doing some bona fide research that will get published um, in a peer-reviewed journal in the future then let me know because i am desperate to do more research projects with more organizations because the the more research i do then the and if the findings are similar if the findings are similar then the stronger validity that gives to to some of the ideas that I want to do my research into. So if you or your organisation are interested in uh, an individual's identity, how that inter- interrelates and interacts with their 
identity in the workplace, how that overlaps and inter interrelates with the identity that you as an organization have, then let me know and let's talk about doing some research together because um, I think they are incredibly important constructs. Uh, just last week, I was working with a, uh, a new startup organization who just got some uh, venture capital funding. So they've just been invested in by a VC. And they're five years old now. And they're due to double in the double size, both in terms of employees, revenue and profit in the next 18 months to two years. So I was with them last week talking about their identity as a business, what they need to how they're going to renegotiate their identity now that they have um, this additional backing because those venture capitalists will have expectations both in terms of numbers and performance but also in terms of uh, culture or ways of working or practices or approaches uh, and they've got to where they've got to and they've, they've negotiated a really clear identity for who they are um, and my challenge to them was, to what extent are you going to need to renegotiate that over the five years ahead? Because your the organization's identity isn't fixed. So where their identity now isn't the same as it was five years ago. It's evolved and changed over time. Some things have, have held true, some things have slipped away, new things have come in. So for the next five years, the same will happen, I would wager. Or the research tells me, should I say. The research tells me that... Um, that, that identity will need to be continually renegotiated over time. But it also has an impact for the individuals within the organization because they have, they're part of that organization because to a greater or lesser degree, they engage with that identity. What that company stands for resonates with them. Uh, and I know that because I spoke with them and, and that's what they told me. So I'm trusting that they've told me the truth. Um, but let's work the, on the basis that they are. And so if the organization has to renegotiate its identity or has to renegotiate some of its values or it has to let some of the things go, what's that going to mean for the people that are in it? Because when, you're, when you work for an organization, you, by osmosis, take on part of that organization's identity as your own. Now, it may already um, overlap with some of your own values. That's, you know, we talk about, you know, recruiting for cultural fit. That's that, that's that overlap between what the organization's identity is and what your identity is as an individual. Um, one company I used to work in, you know, if you didn't fit, if, you're, if your identity didn't fit the company identity, then you were quite quickly uh, managed out of the business, to put it politely. Um, is that a good thing? Well, that's a different question. We'll come back to that another time. But the the interplay between individual identity and company identity is a fascinating one for me. And so what I prompted in the time that I was with them was some really gnarly discussions. And I don't mean gnarly like, you know, surf dude, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure gnarly, but gnarly in the at future blue way, the Julie Driver way, which is the you know, difficult, knotty, feels uncomfortable, gnarly kind of way. You know, that's, you know, I love that gnarly, just in the word itself, when you say gnarly, it kind of, it does, the, the, the way that you say the word tells you what it is and what it's about, or one way that you can say the word tells you what it is and what it's about. Um, so we had some really gnarly conversations about what, does, what parts of their identity, uh, the, of the organization's identity, do they need to keep hold of? What parts should they be letting go of? 
what do they need to protect their identity from? And then I translated that down to individuals. You know, as an individual, what's what of your identity do you absolutely have to hold on to? What could you let go of? And what do you need to protect yourself from? And they made for some really fascinating discussions for me as a behaviour analyst to sit and watch because there were differences of opinion. Some people said, we need, you know, well, I think we should let go of this. Well, I don't think that's absolutely not something we should let go of. We should 100% be holding on to that because of these things. And those differences of opinion, and uh, I said at the time, that these the, the, the conversations that were happening were absolutely key for preparing them for the next phase of where they're going. Because if you don't have those conversations in the open, they will happen either in behind closed doors, to use a metaphor, or they'll happen in the shadows, to use another metaphor, or they will they will just happen by osmosis and, and things will change and people won't like it. Or they may love it. It depends on, on what the change is and what that's meaning for the identity of the organisation and their own identities too. So... By having these conversations in the open, it helps prepare the organisation and the individuals in it for the renegotiation of the identity that is due to come uh, in the future. So I'm sharing that as, as an example of um, where where I think additional research would be really, really useful and valid and, um, and beneficial. Some, some more reflections on, on the year then, just to, I guess, do, do something a bit more general. Um, I said I'd do two live podcasts at the start of the year. I've only got two and a half months left. Uh, no, three and a half months left, sorry. Um, that's going to be tight to fit two live podcasts in in that time. I'm definitely going to do one, uh, but I'm not going to fit in a second. Um, and, and what I find interesting about that is the like the psychological pressure that I put on myself because I made that statement at the start of the year. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm letting myself and you listeners down by not doing two live podcasts this year. Um, and that, I, I, you know, is that true? I don't know. You can let me know if I'm letting you down if I don't do it, if I don't do two live podcasts this year. Um, but that, that self-imposed pressure is something that I found a few times over the course of this year in different ways so when i was building the emotional work hub week before last no last week uh, i'd made a commitment to the colleagues i was working with that we would start the day at nine so we were you know in, in a cottage everybody would get up have you know we'd get up have breakfast do whatever we needed to do and then we'd start work at nine o'clock and my intention was to go swimming at half six in the morning and i had a rubbish night's sleep and when it got when I eventually woke at half seven, I thought, oh, I can't go swimming because if I go swimming now, I won't be ready for nine o'clock. And then I started to kind of potter around and I was checking Twitter and, you know, just generally not doing a lot. And then I had I kind of the, the self chat in my head was, what are you doing? You know that you're going to perform better today after a swim you know that when you exercise in the morning it gives you energy it gives you it helps with your attention it gets you focused for the day 
and now instead you're lying here playing around on Twitter instead of getting your ass out of bed and going swimming. And the colleagues that you're with, and because in my head I was like, oh yeah, but I'd be letting them down. If I, you know, we've said nine, and like if they're ready at nine and I'm not there at nine, then I'm letting them down, and that's not right, and that's not appropriate. And I, and I said to myself, well, that that really doesn't matter. What matters is all of the people here know what their jobs are for today, and they know that we're finishing by three o'clock at the latest. So or was it two? Anyway, we had a, we had a we we had a you know, everybody had their list of jobs to do, including me, and clarity about when those jobs needed to be done by. Whether I was there at nine o'clock or ten o'clock didn't matter. What mattered was I got my shit done by two or three, whatever the time was that we left. And and I found it really interesting that the 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 cycle, you know, the kind of default setting that. Uh, that was pinging off in my head about, oh, I need to be there for nine. Even though I get really annoyed and frustrated with, you know, work organisations that don't work flexibly or don't entertain flexible working and the whole nine to five culture and all that stuff. But yeah, and if I was at home on my own, it wouldn't have been an issue at all. But because there were other people around, I felt I, I put pressure on myself to be there for nine o'clock. So I went swimming. I got back and I was ready to go at 10 to 10. And I smashed through my to-do list that day. I think I was done by half twelve. And then I managed to get extra stuff done between half twelve and, and when we finished. And it would have been so easy for me to get to kind of go, no, promise there for nine o'clock, be there for nine o'clock and not done the swim. I was so pleased that I did. Um, now, that's just me running my own business with two colleagues imagine what uh, so that my you know my, my reflections then are imagine what that's like for someone who works in a team of five or ten or who works in in an office with 500 people in it if i'm feeling some pressure due to you know kind of ingrained rules and expectations in my head with two colleagues in a cottage in leicestershire how on earth might it be for other people so it's really got me thinking about what am I, what do I want to do with that and, and what can we do to help um, individuals and organisations get over some of those, I don't know what to call them, I want to call them programmes but that probably doesn't do it justice. Um, yeah, really got me thinking. Haven't got an answer feel like I should have. There you go, there's another one of these. feel like you should have an answer, Phil, because you're doing a podcast. You must have an answer for the listener. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so what's coming then? What's what's coming up in the future? So um, I, the live podcast is going to be at Christmas time. Uh, it's going to be the last week before Christmas. Uh, so the live podcast is going to be week commencing, he says, talking slowly and pausing and hesitating so he can open his diary and make sure he knows what it is. So the live podcast is going to be uh, on week commencing the 17th of December. Uh, I'll let you know where and when, closer to the time. Um, What else does the future hold? Some amazing guests lined up for the podcast, uh, talking about emotion in body movement, talking about emotion in change, in big organisational change. Um, uh, and some other, I can't tell you about yet, guests that are in the pipeline. So some really, really exciting things to come on the podcast itself. Um, And he whispers. 
I've applied to do a PhD. Hopefully I'll start in January. But don't tell anybody that yet. Okay, thanks. And I think that's it. To, to, to sound very much like Ross Garner. Um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Not just this particular episode, but the podcast in general. Uh, I tipped over 6,000 listeners this week. And just felt immense, immensely proud that... Um, you fair listener enjoying the content as much as you are um, because the number of listeners goes up the number of subscribers goes up the number of listens goes up uh, and it just keeps getting better and better and better so I'm very grateful for you taking your time to uh, to listen to this podcast um, and if you'd be so kind as to leave us a review on iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher or Overcast or wherever it is that you get your podcast from Uh, I'd be really grateful because those reviews help other people find us and they help me make a bigger difference in the world by having bigger, broader and wider conversations. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Um, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, the next episode looking at uh, organisational change with Julie Driver and I'll see you soon. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.